Well, if you got a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark 15, Mark chapter 15, we're going to look again at Mark, getting near the end. And we're going to pick up in Mark 15, and I think we'll just read through the chapter. I'm not going to cover it all tonight, but beginning in verse 20, it says, When they, the Roman soldiers, had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place of Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed upon him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priest mocking said among themselves with the scribes, Well, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthai, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calls Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed. And gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate, and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been a while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, and took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulchre, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulchre. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. If I was going to ask you, or if you went and asked somebody on the streets, let's say, not somebody here, what was the most important event in the history of man, you'd probably get a lot of different answers. You know, a lot of people would probably say World War I and II were probably two of the most important events 
you know, millions of people were killed, and the whole thing about we're going to have world peace and the world's going to work together kind of became an illusion after that. And in fact, a lot of Christians before that believed in postmillennialism, which the kingdom of God's going to be ushered in, and that just became a <laughs> basically nobody much believes that anymore. Or some people might say it was the Gutenberg Press, because that really affected the world in a great way. Because before that, only the rich had books. But once the printing press was developed, that's why we all have Bibles in our lap. So everybody had the ability to learn at that point. Or some would say the Renaissance, because we went from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance, and now people no longer believed the earth was flat. And they realized that mathematics could help tell them how an apple fell out of a tree. And you got physics and engineering came out of all that. Art came alive and ignorance was pushed aside. That did change history and the world quite a bit. Or some would say it was Roman rule and peace, the Pax Romana. Because through that, their road system and their justice system and actually their postal system still have effects on the world today. And I saw one survey where they asked what the greatest event in history was, and, and one person said it was the American Revolution. And in a lot of ways, we are the grand experiment, whether you realize it or not, because we are the separation of church and state, and all these different ideas and philosophies and systems from the world were brought together here. And look at the influence, and I wouldn't say really in a good way, but the influence that we're having on all of the world to this day. From clear back, started with the American Revolution. But honestly, for a Christian, the crucifixion has got to be the single most important event in all of human history. Because it's not only affected human history, but it is going to affect millions of lives of creatures and human beings on this earth throughout all eternity, unlike any other event. But I would say the crucifixion is no doubt the reason that God created the universe think about that. So he knew before he created anything, you know what he knew? He knew that Satan and Adam were both going to fall before he ever created them. They would both rebel. And he knew then before he created anything, he was either going to have to destroy creation because of sin, or he's going to have to redeem it by entering into this creation and bear on the cross, which is what he did, the sin of the world that it justly deserved to be punished. He knew that before he created anything. Jesus said to the sheep, you got the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and he said this in Matthew 25, 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand to the sheep, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I mean, he had his elect people in view from before he ever created a thing. That's you and me. He knew he was going to save us, and then he was going to have to come and die for us that we could live in eternity with him before anything was created. All of that wasn't a surprise. It was a predetermined plan, wasn't it? The fall, sin, the fact we would have to be redeemed, because we know this verse too, Revelation 13.8 says that he was the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. The crucifixion was the greatest event in history, in eternity. And guess what the focus is going to be when you read the book of Revelation? What is going to be the focus for all eternity? The lamb slain on the throne, worshiping him. All glory will go to him. That's something, isn't it? And you think about it, 
the greatest event, you think about it, without the cross, there would be no hope for anyone of an eternity with God. No true hope. There would be no new heavens and no new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness that we have to look forward to. There would not even be sinners included in this. There would be no common grace that everyone on this earth, without the cross, there would be no common grace that we all enjoy. Saint and sinner alike. There would be no rain on the just and the unjust. And you think about it, there would be no influence of God's justice and mercy, which there is on this earth, because there would be no salt on the earth. Because you think about it, when that's removed, when the salt's removed and his restraining hand of grace is removed and that's taken away, guess who rules on this earth? It's coming up, the Antichrist. And we have the book of Revelation and the great tribulation and nothing but wrath is poured out on this earth at that time. It's a terrible time. But the fact that that's not here and the fact that the repentance is still granted to people and still open and the gospel is still preached is all because of one thing, one event, the cross. That's the only thing that gives hope in this world, period. That's why the passion and the crucifixion of our Lord is given so much space in the gospels. It's given quite a bit of space. We've talked about that because it is the good news, the crucifixion, because without the cross, obviously there would be no good news. I mean, it kind of goes without saying. And here's the thing. We in this church and really a lot of people in America kind of live in a bubble because, you know, most people here, they're not going to hang around talking negatively about the cross. We sing songs about the cross. Americans, even people that aren't really believers, they will wear crosses around their neck. They'll have their Bibles imprinted with the cross. But most of the world doesn't feel that way about the cross. Do you realize that? The greatest religion, in numbers-wise, if you just put them all out, Christianity's ahead of all of them. The greatest growing religion, though, in the world right now is Islam. You add all the other religions together, and we're outnumbered. Christians are outnumbered. I mean, we're talking about professing Christians. But here's the thing about Islam. You know, Islam rejects the divinity of Jesus Christ. Everyone probably knows that, right? But did you know that Islam also rejects the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? They believe in Jesus, and they even believe the Quran even teaches he was sinless. But he was a prophet of God, and they don't believe that God would allow his prophet to die on a cross. They don't think Jesus really died on the cross. Our versions of the Bible are corrupted. But God substituted something that looked like him on the cross, and he raised him to heaven. That Jesus never actually died. They deny and denying the crucifixion and the resurrection. Guess what they're denying? Any hope of salvation for themselves. It doesn't matter how nice they are, how many good works they do, how moral they may seem. Their God is not our God. Allah is not the Father. I've had Muslims say that to me several times. Their God is not our God. Their Father is not our Father. Allah is not the Father. For us, and sometimes you can tend to get away with this. I mean, like the emphasis can be the faith message, holiness, just a lot of other things. But for us, the cross should always be central. I mean, it was for the Apostle Paul. It was everything for him. You read in the beginnings of 1 Corinthians, he said, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and what we're going to talk about tonight and him crucified, the crucifixion. He also knew what? 
That message of the cross, of a crucified carpenter, has never been and never will be socially acceptable. Even here in America, in the crowd I ran with, we didn't talk about that. Really, the message of the need for repentance, that the judgment of sin took place there, that God's love and justice is both shown, it's never popular. And Paul said this, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? Foolishness. They see no need for it. Their God's not like that. They don't need to have someone die in their place. That's what they would say. But he goes on to say, but unto us that are saved, this cross that is foolishness to the world, he said, but unto us that are saved, it is the what? It is the power of God in so many ways. The only thing that could change our hearts, the only thing that can bring healing into our lives and everything else, the life of God into our lives to restore what the devil took from us. But listen, the gospel preached is always going to bring a reaction when it's truly preached. You're going to get people that are turned against you or God's going to open somebody's heart and they're going to receive eternal life. That's what you see all through the gospels and all through history. The whole subject of the crucifixion is a bit more than you could cover in one night in the cross, I would say. But I just want to look here at Mark's account. Not going to get as far as I thought I might tonight. And we'll just see what we can glean. We read there, beginning in verse 20, that after the soldiers, they mocked the Lord, put a purple robe on him, jammed a crown of thorns on his head, kept hitting him repeatedly in the head with a reed, spitting on him, bowing their knees and just mocking him. I mean, saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews, which hail means it's like greetings. Good morning, King of the Jews. It's a total put down. And they finally, they get through doing that putting through all that humiliation. So he's twice been through the whole humiliation, beating, spitting, all of that. They take off the purple robe, put his own clothes back on him, and look what it says there, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put his own clothes on him, and then it says they led him out to crucify him. Where are they leading him to? They're leading him out into the streets. And from here on out, everything that's done to the Lord Jesus Christ is a public spectacle. There's a definite method to their madness, to the Romans, and what they're about to do to Jesus or anybody that they crucified. They would take these criminals, these victims that were going to be crucified, and they would parade them, which is what they're getting ready to do with him, they would parade them through the streets. And a lot of times they would take the longest route they could because they want everybody to see them. They want everybody to know what's going on here. And the crime they committed, they would either wear it around their neck or they would have somebody carrying it so they could clearly see this is why this man is going to be crucified. They want everybody to know it. And they take the long way, have that placard, then they would crucify him. And they always crucified the criminals on crowded roads. Why would they do that? Because they want people to look and see the torment that would happen to produce fear in people and a terror in people. That is how the Romans ruled, with fear and terror. So this Quintilian, a Roman soldier, said, Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. And people would see that. that Hopefully they'd be like, I don't want any part of that. I want to avoid that at all costs. And I'm saying, those people back then understood what crucifixion was all about. 
and they knew it was something to avoid. You couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. It was only reserved for non-Roman citizens, slaves, and violent criminals. Cicero said this, he said, who was a Roman, this is the most cruel and horrifying punishment that could ever be imagined. And he's saying, Roman citizens not only don't have to fear the cross, you need to just get it out of your mind. Don't even think about it. It's that bad, is what he said. When the first time the Jews revolted against Rome in Jerusalem, the Roman army, they had besieged the city, surrounded it. Nothing could go in, nothing could go out. So some of the Jews were trying to sneak out and get some food just so they could eat. And the Romans caught them. And the ones they caught, they crucified, it says, right next to the city walls. And Josephus, who's a historian, reported that Titus, the Roman general, here's what he said, hoped that the spectacle of all these Jews crucified around the city might perhaps induce the Jews to surrender for fear that continued resistance might involve them in a similar fate. And listen to this, the soldiers out of rage and hatred amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses nor crosses for the bodies. So they have got these people mocking these Jewish people. The soldiers, they hate the Jews so much that they've got them crucified in all these different positions just to make fun of them. But they said they ran out of space and they ran out of crosses. Now, could you imagine that? That's unbelievable. Back to what's going on with the Lord here. You know, a lot of times you'll see in the movies, or Carl Goller used to have one up the road where it was an actual cross with the cross beam and the vertical and the horizontal beam. Well, that's not what they would have been carrying. Jesus wouldn't have been carrying that. The vertical beam actually was, it stayed in place. And they would carry the cross beam. And they would take that there and then it would be lifted up. And it wasn't like their feet were where the ceiling would be. They were just raised about two feet off the ground. And that's how you have conversation going on. You're like, hey, Jesus. It wasn't like that. So a lot of times what you see in the movies isn't reality. Mark doesn't tell us why the Lord couldn't carry that beam, but we can only imagine. Because Jesus was a strong person. He did a lot of walking. He was a carpenter. He wasn't a wimp by any means. But you think about what all he went through that night, beaten in the face. It was just even the, go back to the garden, go back before that. The emotional trauma he suffered in the garden, sweating that blood, it had to be physically exhausting. He's not had any food. I'm sure they didn't give him any water to drink. He's going through all of that. He's been beaten. He's been pummeled. He's been beaten in the head. And worst of all, he's been scourged. And that scourging would, like they said, it would kill a lot of people. It would rip your flesh open. Your organs would be exposed a lot of times. He just doesn't have the strength to carry that crossbeam. So what does it say happened? They get a man named Simon. Compel him, the Romans do, to carry Jesus' cross. Now what's interesting here is Mark names his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, which is unusual. Look what it says there in verse 21. And they, the Romans, compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Simon was a common name, and, but apparently it's obvious he's writing this because this Simon, he's basically, so we think that the Gospel of Mark was written to Roman Christians. So they apparently knew who these guys were. And he's like, you know, Simon, who has the sons? Rufus and Alexander. So he's writing that. And Paul talks about a Rufus in Romans 16, 13, and don't know for sure, but I would assume it is the same Rufus. 
as James Edwards points out in his commentary, which I thought was good, it's not insignificant that Mark writes that Simon does what? What does it say at the end of verse 21? To bear his cross. He bears his cross. It's the Lord's cross, but really it's his cross, isn't it? That's where it should have been all of our crosses, the one the Lord died on. But Simon bears his cross right before and after that he speaks of Jesus' crucifixion. Right after that. So one of the crucial marks of being a disciple that Mark talks about is to take up one's cross and follow Jesus. Mark 8, it says this. He's quoting the Lord. Mark writes, Whosoever shall come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, a lot of times people just want to come to the Lord Come to the Lord and pray a prayer and be forgiven. But it's more than that, isn't it? I'm saying Christianity, and thinking through this myself, this whole thing of what the Lord suffered on the cross, He tells us if we suffer with Him, we will reign with Him, doesn't He? And there is this daily element that Christianity is just not a cakewalk. That we say a prayer, I mean, there is suffering involved. And it's not just coming to Him, it's doing what? It's following him. And when we follow him, if we follow him and obey what he says, what's that going to bring about? Maybe not this literally, like with Simon the Cyrene, but it's going to bring about our death in so many ways, isn't it? Maybe a physical death, but you know what we're talking about, dying to our flesh, picking up our cross daily. So Simon is the first one to literally obey the command of Jesus, pick up his cross and follow me. And here's something to think about. He did it, didn't he? And you think about his faithfulness. It doesn't specifically say this, but you think about it. His faithfulness to take up the Lord's cross and follow him. He has two sons named. They have to be named because they were Christians and active in the church. And it's like, I thought about that. You think about God will reward our faithfulness. And I think carry it on to our children. There are a lot of promises that way. So if we're willing to follow him and die to our flesh and obey him, he'll reward us, just like he did Simon there. In Acts 16, the jailer, come to the Lord, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and your house will be saved. And that's the, what would happen. You get the leader of the house, and everybody else tends to follow. Something to think about there. Now, verse 22 tells us, and it says, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. Anybody that's been over to Israel, there's two sites over there, two main sites, and I think there's others that they talk about where they try to say this is where the Lord was crucified. Of course, one of them is a Catholic shrine. Catholics have shrines for everything called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is more in the city of Jerusalem proper now. But they'll say, yeah, this is where it happened, and the tomb's over there. I just I think it was even just in the news here lately. There's another place that's a little bit outside of town that's called Gordon's Calvary. And that actually has a tomb nearby, but you literally can see a skull in the rock. I mean, it's not like it's made up. It is there. What they don't know for sure, though, is if they called this the place of the skull because there was a place that looked like a skull there or whether it's just because people were crucified and their skulls were buried around there. Nobody really knows. The interesting thing is you go to that Gordon's Calvary and there is a literal tomb that would have been, whether it was the Lord's tomb or not, who knows, it doesn't really matter. But you can see what a tomb similar to what he would have been put in would have looked like. You can actually get down in there and look at it. It's pretty interesting. 
You know, personally, I've got a book on all of this stuff. Personally, I really don't care. <laughs> I mean, because I know what the Word says, right? I don't care if they find the ark. I don't care if they find Noah's ark. I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't need any of that, do we? They can find it, not find it. We got the Bible, don't we? So we know he died. And he was buried, and he was put in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and the stone was rolled away, and he's no longer there. We know all of that, don't we? Just because God's Word tells us that. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. But before they crucified Jesus, it says they offered him wine mingled with myrrh. So that would have been some kind of a narcotic. So you get the picture here of what the Lord had to suffer. That would have been something, a narcotic to deaden the pain, help him take the pain of what was coming up before he gets crucified, before he gets nailed on the cross. And he had to already be in a lot of pain. But what does it say? It's wine mixed with myrrh. And he does what? They offer it to him. He's like, I'm not going to take any of that. Because for one thing, I said, I'm not drinking any more of the vine until when? He comes back in his kingdom. The other thing is, He's going to have his full senses. The father said, I've got a cup for you to drink. And he's drinking that cup, which is a cup of suffering. He's going to drink that cup being fully conscious and fully aware of what's going on. He's not going to get drugged by drinking man's cup. And that says something by our Lord because God had ordained that he suffer and he is going to accept the suffering to the full extent. It says a lot there, doesn't it? You come to verse 24, and Mark talks about that he's crucified, and he doesn't go into a lot of detail, does he? And when they crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots upon them, and every man should take. In verse 25, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. He doesn't get into a lot of details, and I've even explained it some. I mean, it's basically a slow, agonizing death that is slow asphyxiation. They can't breathe. The only way you can breathe is to push up with your feet. That's why Jesus is saying short sentences. He wouldn't have been able to quote all of Psalm 22. He quotes the first verse, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He couldn't quote that whole psalm there. Those guys have trouble breathing. Eventually they lose strength. And people could be on those crosses for three days because they didn't sever a main artery. So they're not going to bleed to death. It's just literal, slow torture. And like they say, his back would have been opened up and totally raw, especially when they rip his clothes off of him. They would just throw those guys on the ground. They didn't care if dirt got in their wounds. They didn't care anything about these people. That would have all been painful. And when you're hanging there, any movement on that cross is just you're rubbing up against that wood would have just been excruciating. And Mark doesn't get into a lot of that. But one thing he does with this simple explanation, and they crucified him, is does what? I already said it. He establishes that Jesus was crucified and died, and it is an historical fact. It's not like the Muslims say, where, well, we're not sure it really happened. But they also, he adds on to that about they parted his garments. What's he, what he's doing, he's tying it in immediately, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. He's saying none of this is an accident. Every detail of this was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago that's coming to pass. God has been in total control of everything that's happening here. You think about it. You think about how amazing this is. How did the Jews put their criminals to death? They stoned them, didn't they? And yet Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, we're going to look at it here in a little bit, it states clearly that it says what? They pierced. 
my hands and my feet. And the Bible doesn't say cursed is everyone that is stoned, does it? What does it say? Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. All of this is prophecy fulfilled. In Mark chapters 14 to 16, there are over 25 prophecies just from the Psalms that are fulfilled to the letter. To the letter. All of this prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You know, it's funny, a lot of the prophecies about the Lord have to do with the mockery that he received and the verbal abuse. And Mark makes a big deal about that. That's one thing that kind of stands out. He doesn't say much about the crucifixion, but he's given us a lot of detail about the spitting, the mockery, the things they would say to the Lord. Look there in verse 29, and it says, And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. And come down from the cross. And likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. So that's what's going on. We have three groups there. If you look at it, there's three groups that mock and taunt the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, they that pass by and wagging your head is just a sign of contempt, utter contempt for the person on the cross. And they're mocking his prophecy that in three days, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They're mocking that, aren't they? The thing is, he would indeed come down from the cross and in three days build his temple in the resurrection. And through that, they're saying, save thyself. Well, he will not only save himself, but he is going to offer salvation to all of mankind. A lot of these people, they're mocking, but they're literally prophesying, unbeknownst to themselves. And the chief priests and the scribes, these guys have been plotting for years how they could destroy the Lord. And now they're gloating and they're mocking his healing powers. That word saved is the same for heal. He saved or healed others. Save thyself. They're mocking that. They promise if he comes down from the cross, they'll see and believe. And guess what? He did. And we can, can't we? Most of them couldn't. And the last group is the two thieves. Now, we know that one of them repents. Mark doesn't tell us that. He just wants us to see what? We're seeing here the utter contempt, rejection, and mockery of the Lord. Everybody, he's saying, holds him in contempt. Even these two guys that are suffering the same fate he is. You would think they might be a little merciful. Like, hey, we know what you're suffering. No, there's not even any mercy in them, is there? He's like total rejection. I think that that was a tremendously hard trial for Jesus to endure. I think Mark makes a big deal about it because I don't think it's a small thing. It makes a lot about the ridicule and mockery. You think about it, Jesus on the cross is totally isolated from any words of human comfort and support. Totally isolated from any of that. And being rejected and isolated is part of the curse of sin. So you think about it, we are created, that's why we have churches, that's why people live in towns and villages and you don't have too many mountain men. And even the mountain men, they used to... Yeah, I remember reading the books and seeing the movies and when I was a kid. I think, yeah, oh, that sounds cool. Well, those guys couldn't stay up on those mountains by themselves forever. Every now and then, they had to get around people because that's the way we're made. 
social creatures to have loving acceptance from others. Has everyone turned from him? And when his father's face turns, it becomes almost unbearable. He never sins. You know, in the prison systems today, and the one over here that we go to in LaGrange, there's two types of solitary confinement. They don't actually put anybody in solitary over where we're at, but when they punish them, they have segregation, disciplinary segregation. So if an inmate over there gets in trouble, they take him out of the general population and they'll stick him in these cells where he can't get out of the cell. He's in a little cell, but he's got other people right next to him so they can talk to each other, they'll pass notes. It's not the same as being out in the yard, not the same, but they're not totally isolated. But the other type of segregation is administrative segregation, and that's when someone is considered to be a threat or a danger to guards and prisoners, and they'll put them in isolation, total isolation, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. And I think this happens more out in California because I read that according to a University of California psychologist, Craig Haney, he says prisoners who are deprived of normal human interaction. They suffer from mental health problems, including anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, paranoia, aggression, and depression. So we are made to be social creatures, not made to be isolated like that. And I believe when the Lord is crying out from the cross, it's not just physical pain. That had to obviously enter in there, but it's also he is like isolated hanging on the cross there for the first time in eternity. That gives us just a small picture of the devastation of hell, if you think about it. An eternity separated from the love of God and fellowship with others. And we just talked about it, its outer darkness. That's the way the Bible describes it. Terrible. And that's why God came down to this earth, God himself, and subjected himself to all that we've been reading about. Because it is that terrible. And out of his love, he says, I'll take that on myself so that you don't have to and I don't have to. And that's what love is. If you would, let's read Psalm 22. And it really, especially at the beginning, you can see this mockery and how it affected the Lord. It's a messianic psalm, famous psalm, Psalm 22. David wrote it. And it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear not. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried unto you, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Well, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me from out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. You are my God from my mother's belly." And look what he says, verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bowls have compassed me. Strong bowls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. 
My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, my strength hasty to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for you have heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he has done this. You know, when you read verses 6 to 9, back at the beginning of that, you can just feel the contempt and the pain that was involved because the Lord, we have to remember, was fully human. He wasn't Superman. He had feelings. He had needs, just like a human being would have. And to say that what people say about you and all that doesn't bother you isn't the way it is. Because when there's none to help you, you feel abandoned, don't you? And look, I mean, that's what he says there in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. He's like, I need you, Lord, because there's nobody else interested in helping me whatsoever. They're doing their best to torment me and mock me. And that's what's going on there. And Paul struggled with that. We've talked about this before, being abandoned by his friends. He wrote that at the end of his life. An old man ought to have his friends around him. But Paul had to write this at my first answer, 2 Timothy 4. No man stood with me, but all forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. But he said, nevertheless, who didn't forsake him? The Lord, he stood by me, he said, and strengthened me, is what Paul said. Really, what's happening here, these taunts to get the Lord off the cross. He saved others. Save thyself. You saved others. Come down and we'll believe. It's the same temptation he faced in the garden, isn't it? To save himself, to avoid the cup. But he had made up his mind, fixed his face like a flint from Gethsemane that he was going to do God's will and not his own. And this man Edwards wrote this, in this haunting picture of Jesus fastened to a cross and assailed in mockery, we see proof of the amazing difference between God's way and everything which men consider their goal or conceive of as being God's way. Here's what he's saying is, Jesus isn't doing things the way men would because men would have saved themselves. Men would have you know, gotten off that cross, would have called down the angels to destroy these people. Instead, he's hanging there defenseless. God's way is not man's way, is it? to get things done. He went on to say there's no self-defense from Jesus. 
No effort to get even or even get in the final word. No attempt to preserve at least a modicum of dignity and pride. He's not trying to preserve any of that. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to the malevolence and violence of the world. Let's them do to him whatever they want, and they do. So back to Mark 15. It's interesting when you get to verse 33, and all the gospel accounts that speak of the darkness that covered the land, there is no mention of any more conversation taking place from Jesus or anyone else. You think about it, you're standing there, it's high noon. High noon with the sun out, and all of a sudden there's darkness just slowly takes over for three hours. All the taunting stops. Now I imagine if you're standing there, that had to be eerie, wouldn't it? I think that would be eerie and created a somber mood. Look what it says. And in the sixth hour was come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's until three o'clock in the afternoon. Three hours of total darkness. And I would think everybody there would have to be very uncomfortable and wondering what does this mean? And what did that darkness mean? What did that darkness mean? Why did God send that? I think it clearly symbolizes divine judgment is what was taking place because what's going on here? Jesus is bearing the penalty of our sin. He's being judged in our place. When Exodus 10, when God judged Egypt, the last plague that he sent before he killed the firstborn was the plague of darkness. It says this came over the entire land. That's what it said about the plague that came over the land of Egypt. Even darkness it says, which may be felt, is what happened in the book of Exodus. And it goes on to say, there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So darkness is a form of judgment. That's what it's saying there. It's also, like I said, it's a symbol of God's wrath and judgment. Amos 8, we all know that, where it talks about there will be a famine one day, a famine for the word. But before it says that, God says, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, I will cause the sun to go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feast in the morning and all your songs into lamentations. That's a prophecy of judgment in the book of Amos, Amos chapter 8. When Peter quoted the prophecy of Joel in Acts 2, he spoke of darkness as being a part of God's end time judgment and wrath. And it says this, Acts 2, Peter said, And all my servants and all my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Amen. But he goes on to say, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And says, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. So darkness is a sign of God's wrath and judgment. And like we said, we just read that in Matthew chapter 8 in the faith of the centurion where Jesus said, many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast, where? Into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What darkness represents here is 
the wrath of God on man's sin, and Jesus is experiencing the full brunt of it. He's having it all. We have to face the fact that the God we serve, love, and praise is not only a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath and justice and holiness. And it says he is a consuming fire. That's who he is. And that's who the God of the Bible is. Not to have an understanding of his wrath and justice is not to understand the love of God. You can't understand the love of God without understanding his wrath and justice. And you can't understand the cross without understanding that. Because the cross displays two of God's attributes. His nature in their fullness. And if you don't love them both, you don't love God. Because on display there, it's in Romans 3, it's all through the Bible, is God's justice is on display. His wrath, his holiness, and his justice. And on the other hand, it's also the fullness of his love. That's where you want to know about God's love. It's not an emotional thing. It's in the cross. That's where you understand it. I'm not saying there's no emotion involved, but that is how you understand his love. Proverbs 16, 6 says, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Psalm 85.10 says, Surely his salvation is near them that fear him. And it says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness, his holiness, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And that's what happens on the cross. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God's wrath and God's love came together in the greatest display of wisdom and power in history. What we need to understand is God loves justice and his law. He loves his law. And the law, it says in the Bible, is what? It does, does it say there's anything wrong with the law? The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, isn't it? There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. It says that the law is holy, just, and good. You all not remember that? Holy, just, and good. Nothing wrong with it. And God is the moral judge of the universe. And so he has to uphold that law. And I'll say, I wouldn't want to serve a God that didn't. You couldn't trust him. You couldn't. So listen, you know, Lisa and the girls were talking the other day about that Louisville, a lot of people know this, it's the center for trafficking these young girls, sex trafficking, sex slaves, whatever they're calling them, selling them as slaves. And you know how they get them? This is what they're saying. One way, these women will approach these young teenage girls at Walmart, at malls, at wherever, and they'll ask them, do you want to know the mother of the universe? And if they'll go along with that, they'll say, well, come to our Bible study and we'll teach you about it or whatever. And next thing you know, they're in the Red Roof Inn. That's where all this is taking place from. I guess they know it, but they're having trouble legally doing anything about it. So let me ask you something. What if your daughter, and they go after these teenage girls, but what if that was your teenage girl, and those people somehow managed to seduce her and get her, and you never see her again because she's been sold as a slave somewhere? What would you think about that those people, do you not think those people, you would want to see them arrested and prosecuted and brought to justice? Or would you just be like, well, you know, hey, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, everybody's kind of got their problems. Is, is that the way you would look at that? I mean, that's an extreme case, isn't it? But you're saying justice should be done because we're made in God's image. 
God says, listen, I am going to punish kidnappers, which is what's taking place there, right? In the law, there are laws against kidnapping in the Bible and murder and adultery. God says, I'm going to punish all of that. And most people would say, man, that is good. I'm glad to hear that. They should be punished. God says, I'm not just going to stop with those, though. I'm going to punish sin wherever it's found. I'm going to punish liars. I'm going to punish backbiters, drunkards, those that lust, those that are angry, those that covet. Wherever sin is found, God's justice says, I have to punish it to be a just and holy God. And so what does that do? That leaves all the world in trouble, doesn't it? When you read Romans chapter 3, it says that every mouth, what the law says, it says to everyone. And God's justice says, I will punish sin. And it leaves every mouth stopped and all the world guilty before God. So what we need to see is, and we need to see this clearly, is the cross. What he did to Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did is his opinion of every person that's ever walked this earth. That's his opinion of me, of you. That's what God thinks about us and our sin. Because all have sinned against the God of infinite love and purity and holiness. We're reading about what Jesus, what happened to him. But what we need to see is that should be us. That is what we deserve. The mockery, the spitting, the taunting, the pain, the scourging. Do you see that you deserve that? That is what it's all about. The darkness, the abandonment, all of what he experienced. That's what we deserve and nothing else. And until you see that, you don't know what it really means to be a Christian. Because I'll tell you what the cross does. When you look at it that way, it takes away all self-righteousness, doesn't it? And you see, man, that's what God thinks of me. At my best day, I'm talking about pre-Christ. I'm not talking about when you become born again and all that. Understand what I'm saying? But it tells us what we all deserve, and that's crucifixion. You can't understand love. You can't understand grace until you see that. Because when you see that, that that's what you deserve, that's where I should be, that he stood in my place, not someone else's. When you see that, then guess what? Grace becomes amazing. <laughs> he was willing to do that for me. Well, that is what I deserved. And I was his enemy. No one dies for their enemies. That's what the Bible teaches. And we sing that song, Amazing Grace, a lot, don't we? And the man that wrote it was John Newton. John Newton got saved in his late 20s. And prior to being saved, but prior to his conversion, he was a slave trader and he was a sailor and had one of the most vulgar, blasphemous mouths you could imagine. About the most ungodly person you could ever imagine. For example, of how wicked he was. He had a black slave he kept as a mistress, and when he caught her in a sexual relationship with this black man, and he took his shovel and killed the black man. And then he finds out that that was her husband. But that's how wicked he was. I read that his mouth was so bad. I read his biography on him years back. His mouth was so blasphemous that whenever they would get in a storm, literally, literally, the other sailors were afraid to stand near him. They were certain he was going to get hit by lightning. I mean, he was that bad. Just a wicked person. And one day, what happened to John Newton? 
John Newton clearly saw he is headed to hell. That he is going to be judged for who he is. He had a praying mother. But one day his eyes were opened up to that. And his eyes were opened up to the cross to see that that judgment that was due John Newton, he saw for him, it was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew how bad he was. He knew this is all I'll ever deserve. No way he could be self-righteous. But he saw it all was put on the Lord Jesus Christ, all of it. And that that's how he could be free. And there he saw grace. Jesus agonizing, suffering in his place so that he could be granted eternal life. And John Newton never got over it. And that's why the second verse of that song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Because it's saying, God is holy. He is serious about sin. He is the judge of all the earth. And that's why those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, they're in grave danger, aren't they? Millions upon billions of people on this earth. Loved ones we know. People sitting in here that are not in union with Christ. That's your only safety. His righteousness, and that comes through a union. A literal union that takes place where your sin becomes His, but His righteousness becomes you. And if you're not clothed in that, God's justice and wrath. Look at the cross to see how serious He is about it. That's what the cross tells us right there. We may not have sinned like John Newton exactly. I think a lot of young people in here never have. But God's grace works the same for all of us, doesn't it? Because no matter who you are in this room, you deserved that cross. What we've read about, what Jesus took in our place. And I read that this Christian choral group changed the words of Newton's hymn from saved a wretch like me to saved a person like me. Now when you do something like that, you've got a big problem. Why would you change that of all things in that song? Because we've got to see that without the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace in our lives, we are wretches. All of us. The cross teaches us two things. To fear God because He's holy. Don't we see that? But it also to delight in His love because He gave up everything. The riches of heaven to come down here and to suffer in our place and die so that we could be delivered from what? The bondage of sin and death. That is love. That's how you understand what love is. That is how God describes His love. 1 John 4, 9 says this, In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And He goes on to say, Herein is love. You want to know what love is? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Do you know what that word propitiation means? Propitiation for our sins. The word means to appease the wrath of God. Because John 3.36 says, He that obeys the Son has everlasting life, but he that obeys not, the wrath of God abides on him. And so the wrath of God is on, was on all of us at one time. It needed to be appeased, satisfied. His justice had to be satisfied. He's got to punish sin. So he's either going to punish our sin in ourselves, which is what hell is all about, or he's going to punish it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And love said he sent his son to be the appeasement of his wrath, 
the propitiation of our sins. That is love. And that's why he says if he was willing to give that and do that, it's more than just an emotion. It's the, I want the welfare of this person to be what it's not. That's what true love is. That's what grace is. He's saying then that should be, love shouldn't just be in word, and it should be in deed and in truth. Our love towards others because we've experienced and we've seen what he's done for us. That's how it works. Amen? And that's what the crucifixion is all about. The substitutionary penal atonement. He's our substitute. It was penal. He was punished. It was punishment. That's going away. That's a doctrine and a teaching that is going by the wayside, I'm telling you. We need to remember that. He was our substitute, our penal substitute. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I ask you to open all of our eyes, Lord, to see clearly what you've done for us on the cross. That, that was us, Lord. You took what we deserved. You stood in our place, condemned. We were condemned and undone and deserving nothing but crucifixion. And yet you took that for us, Lord, in your love. And we are so grateful, so thankful, Father, that you came and did that for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God had mercy on us. And we so thank you for that, Lord. I ask that anyone here that's outside of you, Lord, you'll speak to their hearts and their minds tonight, knowing that a judgment day is coming and tomorrow is not promised. And if they'll cry out to you, Lord, that you'll have mercy. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we thank you that you did that for us, Lord, that your grace came to us and opened our eyes, caused our hearts to fear and turn to you and turn from our sins and grasp hold of what you've done for us on the cross and your love in that way. And we so thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.